This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us, Sanjeev Patro. He's an associate and senior litigator with Magellan Law & Langley. Practice broadly based encompasses a whole bunch of areas like commercial and business litigation, builder's liens, property disputes, estates, trust litigation. Man, Sanjeev, you've got it all going on in your <laughs> practice. Well, it's it's a diverse clientele, so the practice sort of reflects that. That's awesome. Uh, now, the uh, in the uh, in your bio is really cool to see that you clerked in the BC Court of Appeal as well, and uh, that's always in, you always get an interesting perspective when you get to do something like that. Oh yes, that was the first job out of law school. It was uh, it was quite the education. I bet it was. I bet it was. So um, this uh, this segment is uh, we're just talking about. I don't know, just the different things that uh, you deal with as a lawyer or your practice deals with, and sort of giving us a bit of an umbrella look on the first one, first question, um, because we're often seeing court cases in headlines all the time. But there's a whole bunch of things that go on that never are reported or never in the paper and never uh, the regular public gets to see. Is there sort of common types of disputes that that you deal with or that lawyers in general deal with? Well, um, in terms of my personal practice, I think that the, the the catch-all would be breach of contract claims, where one person says the other side either hasn't paid what is owed or did not fulfill their end of the bargain. But um, I think you see also a lot of disputes arising, arising from the, the breakdown of relationships, whether common law or formal marriages. That always seems to revolve around the division of family property and the parenting of minor children. And I'm seeing uh, an increasing number of disputes that involve how assets amassed over a lifetime are to be divvied up when someone passes on. So uh, with the tremendous increase in the number of blended families and late marriages, you know, sometimes second and third marriages, we see a lot of disputes between adult children and, and the spouses of the people their parents married or settled down with later in life. So all in all, I think it mostly comes down to money. You know, whether it's a business dispute, a family matter, or a claim against an estate, people usually seek out legal advice when there's a significant amount of uh, money at stake and, and they're at loggerheads with someone else. I'm also thinking that it's a bit of a generational thing as well in terms of uh, baby boomers whose parents are passing or who have passed, and then there's going to be a whole bunch of us that are are dealing with different issues when it comes to our children. Would you... Would would you say that that's a that's a fair observation? Oh, I think absolutely. You hit the nail on the head because, I mean, we just see in the in the Lower Mainland a tremendous increase in price of real estate. So those are valuable assets, and at the same time, um, you know, people's incomes haven't kept up. So the ability to pass on wealth or or or, or claim something from a, a parent's estate is is somewhat more critical if you're ever going to get yourself established in life. 
Fair enough. And Sanjeev, I think it's really interesting on, on this show, we try to, you know, give our listeners some really valuable advice. And there's probably a lot of times when people said, you know, I wish I could hire a lawyer about this and, and, and so on and so forth. So I think today's segment would be helpful for people to know, you know, when is it useful? Um, you know, when can you fight and when as opposed to when is something that's just not going to, um, you know, work to go forward with a lawyer. So you highlighted a couple of main areas of practice. I wonder if we were to talk about breach of contract. So for the average person listening, you know, what type of situations would give rise to them having an action for breach of contract? Well, I think that the uh, it's a really it's a good question because not every breach of a contract is really going to give you a, a reasonable basis to pursue something in court or, to, or talk to a lawyer. So I think importantly, if you've suffered the loss or if you're going to suffer a loss because of the way somebody else has acted on a contract and provided that uh, what they've done is, is outside of what was agreed upon or outside of the reasonable expectations of the parties, then you've got a claim there potentially. And, and it's important to go and talk to, the, talk to a lawyer early on uh, when you see this situation coming up, rather than later down the line when things may have gone too far. And, you know, sometimes an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So by seeing a lawyer, you know, the first kind of whiff of, of a bit of a breach, you've got more options than if you allow something to continue on. It might be that you've accepted, okay, I'm fine to continue on, even though someone's in breach of a contract. Is, is that correct, Sanjeev? I, I think that's about right. Uh, you know, you, you can shape the litigation or, or the dispute resolution process by, by taking some steps. Sometimes you can gather information when it's available to you, when, when things have gone too far and, and the rupture between, say, two people are, has, has really manifested itself. Um, you're not going to be able to get that information which might be helpful to your claim, establishing the evidence that you need to prove something. Um, You know, people will clam up as as things progress. I was also thinking that uh, the idea that um, there might be other reasons for the breach going on, like it it may not be what it appears to be, and then what's actually going on is two different things, like maybe there's there's an illness or a problem or something that's getting in the way of somebody fulfilling the other side of the contract and sort of asking those questions early that just makes so much more sense uh, be, just in case it is something that's a little more complicated or um, uh, emotional or I can't quite think of the right word but you know other than just very black and white breach of contract I'm going after you because you're not fulfilling my or, or the requirements or the or what I my expectations absolutely I think that makes a lot of sense because People, you know, they're when they're in a situation where they're say, facing a, a, a claim for breach of contract or dealing with a claim for breach of contract, um, they sometimes have trouble turning the tables around and looking at the situation from the other side. Because when people make a deal or come to an agreement, they each had certain expectations of what what they wanted to get out of something. Both both sides intend to get something out of it. Um, and, and and having an idea as what the other side was expecting out of it can can offer. Um, some guidance as to perhaps the way out. So if you figure that this person needs to get to 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 a position X or Y or get this result, um, maybe you can work with them to to resolve the breach, which gets you what you want or close to what you want, and, and still sees them uh, get the result that they need as well. And Sanjeev, let's say we've got a bit of a dispute. We think there's a breach of contract. We're in a business relationship, and we decide to hire legal counsel. What are the typical pitfalls that you would see as you go down the road um, that a client would need to be aware of? You could advise our listeners if you're hiring legal counsel, be aware of X, Y, and Z. Well, I, I think I think I touched on one um, 
uh, just a minute ago, and that's not seeking out or, or advice mm. at the at the get go, at the earliest whiff of right. it. Right, waiting too long. You're waiting too long, um, and it makes such a difference. Knowing a bit about the strengths or weaknesses of a claim or their legal position can be helpful in providing perspective, shaping the way the dispute is handled. For example, if someone knows early on that their position is relatively weak, they may look proactively to strengthen by, uh, their position by, by taking some steps to gather helpful evidence or looking to negotiate a solution early on, recognizing that there's a significant potential for substantial legal costs or in defining of liability against them. On the other hand, if someone knows early on that they're in a relatively strong position, they can negotiate from a position of strength and or know that they can pursue a claim more aggressively. I think another area where I see many people run into is when they're dealing with business and family. Mm-hmm. We, now, we imagine family, especially those who are close to us, to be reasonable, and we expect them to deal with us fairly. But unfortunately, that's not always the case. With family, people often do not properly document their dealings, whether they're loans from parents to their children or vice versa, agreements about joint purchases of property and the like. And unlike strangers, when it comes to family, people tend to be less forward-looking. So they don't look or think about what happens if the money is not repaid or this living situation doesn't under all under one big roof doesn't work out. People need to work, uh, think about that situation and how it might be unwind, money recovered, and that sort of thing. Um, we've only got, uh, I guess, four more minutes left in this segment. Uh, and I wanted to ask, um, I know for a fact that there's lots of other options for folks when there's an issue, when, when there's a legal issue that's arisen and, um, and not going to court and not going uh, to a, into a, a courtroom to settle it. What are the other mechanisms that you found are, are the most helpful or, or as helpful for folks? Well, I mean, in my practice, I'm always willing to pick up the phone and talk to a lawyer on the other side to, to sound out um, their their client's interest in, in negotiating uh, a, a settlement to a dispute. And, and I think that there are all sorts of sort of pressure points in, in the litigation process before you file a claim, um, maybe after people have exchanged documents and conducted discoveries, and then right before a trial when you're going to know what your evidence is, you're going to have a good sense of what the other side's argument. So that makes it, those are sort of good points at which to, to discuss. Um, settlement with the other side. But outside of that, um, there is a process called a mediation where a third mm-hmm. party, often an experienced lawyer with some training, acts to facilitate a negotiation in a structured way. Um, you know, in, the me- in a mediation, the mediator will work with each side to get them to better understand the perspective and the other side's view of things. And often the mediator will act as a go-between, conveying messages and offers and providing advice as to how to move the negotiation forward. But at the end of the day, it's also important to keep in mind that the mediator has no power to force a negotiation to end in an agreement, and uh, the process is voluntary. voluntary. So uh, if any side wants to walk away, they're always free to do so. And another uh, out-of-court process is uh, arbitration. And this is a private, usually confidential process where uh, the people who are in a dispute submit uh, to uh, the authority of a a third party, usually retired judges or or senior lawyers uh, with specific experience. They agree on certain ground rules and a process. And, and essentially, it, it, it functions as sort of a private litigation. So you can keep all of your disputes uh, confidential. You can move the process forward faster. And, and when you're working in, in uh, a sensitive or a delicate business area and you don't want, say, outside competitors to be able to access documents that might have been 
filed in a public court registry, uh, it, it's a good solution. And Sanjeev, in the event that that doesn't work, the alternative dispute resolution, you know, arbitration, mediation, or just negotiating doesn't reach a conclusion, and you've got to go to court. Um, I've dealt with a, a bunch of clients who just had no idea what they were essentially biting off in terms of cost implications. Is there anything you could give um, guidance to listeners if a dispute does proceed to court and knowing that there's incredible amounts of variables, but is there a sense of a ballpark cost implication, you know, to get to court, you're looking at X thousands of dollars or any type of guidance you can give the listeners of, you know, essentially encouraging people to negotiate rather than taking things to court? <laughs> well, Blair, that's a tough question. And mm-hmm. I say it's tough because every dispute is unique. And, and I think the, the amount that people budget for uh, their legal expenses also has to take into account from a practical perspective, what's at stake there. You know, it's, uh, I've often told clients that litigation is both an active and a reactive process. So I can do things to move a claim along or defend a claim, but how the other side reacts and what they do will have a direct impact on a client's legal fees. So I, I generally try to break down the different stages of litigation to, for clients and provide cost estimates for that. And, and, and so, for instance, drafting a, a claim to be filed in court might cost a, a thousand or two thousand dollars if it's straightforward, but it could cost you know many thousands of dollars if it's a complex claim involving a large amount of money and 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 some difficult areas of law um, I and Sajeev I just want to wrap it up there because I think that's a really good place to leave this uh, because for folks that are wanting more information uh, you're the guy to go and see so we've been talking with Sanjeev Petro a, an associate and senior litigator with Magellan Law in Langley and uh, you can get a hold of him on his website magellanlaw.ca Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Now, i got to say, this is one of my favorite topics for our segment mm-hmm. um, because it was something that was brand new to me when, when I first started working with you, and that's talking about a consumer proposal. So we're going to learn what a consumer proposal is and the enormous advantages to what a consumer proposal is. Yeah, I, I'm still amazed, Elaine. We've been doing this show for a number of years. I've been trying to do a lot of marketing with Sands for a lot of years now, but still, just about everybody, when I sit down and meet with them, and I say, you know, have you heard of a consumer proposal? More people shake their head than nod their head. So it's yeah. still something that's still relatively unknown. And I would say it's the greatest debt solution you've probably never heard of. And it is and it is a new concept in terms of it's not replacing something else that was mm-hmm. in, pl- in place before. There were bankruptcies, you could file for a bankruptcy, yeah. and that and that's all. And then the consumer proposal came to light. Yeah, it was an added solution that was brought in, you know, sometime in the 90s or so, but it's really, it's just gained a whole lot of popularity in probably about the last five to seven years. Um, so, you know, if I was looking back about seven years ago with Sands & Associates, it was about a third of our clients filed consumer proposals, about two thirds did a bankruptcy. Now that's completely flipped. So about two thirds of the individuals that come to see us end up filing a consumer proposal and about one third file a bankruptcy. So that's a really significant change from a trustee's perspective. And they're pretty different solutions comparing a bankruptcy and a consumer proposal. So what a consumer proposal is, is it's essentially a repayment arrangement that's made through a trustee, whereas instead of going into a bankruptcy where you throw your hands up and say, I can't afford to negotiate any repayment on these debts, I'm going to pay based on my income, I'm going to take it as it comes. In a consumer proposal, you say to your creditors, I could file for bankruptcy and I would pay you less, and that's my right to do so. 
but I'd prefer not to do that if you guys will come to the table and make a deal with me. And the way a deal works in a consumer proposal is by law, there's no further interest, there's no collection activities against you, everything has to stop as soon as the proposal is filed, and then it's just a question of how much can you reasonably afford to repay on the debts. So a lot of the time, it's far less than 100 cents on the dollar, it's usually in the range of maybe 25 cents on the dollar, 35, 20 to 40 cents, something like that, but it's usually a very big reduction in the total amount of the debt outstanding. When you add that to zero interest and you add that to all the fees are included in what you repay, it can be a really compelling ability for somebody to essentially stare down a really difficult debt problem, look at a bankruptcy alternative and say, you know what, I want to do something different. And a proposal is that something different to get you back on track. Okay. So let's drill down on the consumer proposal and the advantages that it it gives you. Mm -hmm. Um, The first one being you are consolidating your debt. It's not like you're, like you said, you're not uh, throwing your hands up. You're actually taking action. Exactly. So what a lot of people look for first is, oh my God, I've got all this debt. It's at various different interest rates. I'm going to go to the bank. I'm going to try to get a consolidation loan. At least I'll have one payment and I'll pay hopefully a reduced amount of interest. So good in theory, but the challenge is, most people can't qualify for a consolidation loan unless they've got really high income or a whole lot of assets, which maybe they wouldn't need the loan if that's the case. Um, And then also a consolidation loan, you've still got to pay everything back in full, um, plus some interest on top of it. The way a consumer proposal works is it does the exact same as a consolidation loan from the perspective as it puts all of the debt together. It's one payment. It could deal with your credit card debt, your overdraft, tax debt, ICBC debt, payday loans, student loans, personal loans, just about anything else can be part of the consumer proposal. But then the difference from a traditional consolidation is zero interest and it's a repayment of a fraction of the amount, not the full amount. The rest is just written off. So if you pay back 30 cents on the dollar, the balance of the 70 cents on the dollar, that's written off at the end of the proceeding according to law. Okay. And what about the uh, length of time? Is is there a, a stated length of time that this will always take or, or mm-hmm. does that change or is that different? Yeah, there's a maximum that's set out. So a proposal can be as short as you would ever want it to be. So, you know, in some cases, you know, if family members really want to help somebody who's in debt, the way they can help them is to fund a third party lump sum proposal where, you know, maybe the person owes $20,000 and the family is going to chip in, you know, six or $7,000 as a one payment in the proposal. That would all be done in the space of, you know, a month or two. More typically is that if someone has, you know, a bunch of debt, uh, let's use an example of $40,000, they're going to offer a proposal at 30% of those amounts, which is about $12,000. They probably don't have $12,000 sitting around or they might not need our help. So typically what happens in a proposal is you're allowed up to five years to pay off the reduced amount. So you divide in equal monthly payments. In this case, your $40,000 debt reduced down to 12 would be about $200 a month and you'd pay that $200 a month for up to five years. You can pay it off sooner if things get better and you double up on payments, but the maximum term it can ever take is five years. Okay. And that's and you come to that amount after you've worked with me and figured out exactly what I have to pay, what it costs for me to live, yeah. whether it be with a family or I have a family, um, and, and still be able to make these payments on a regular basis. And yeah. and and get ahead. And that's a really important point, Elaine. So as a trustee, uh, when I file a proposal, I have to sign off on two things that I believe to be true. So one, that this is a better deal for the creditors. It's more money than they would get than if the person filed for bankruptcy. And that's pretty easy. We just look at the math. Yeah, you're paying back more. But the other that's really important is, do I believe that the person will be able to perform it? And I can only say that if we've sat down, we've examined the budget, we've proved the income, looked at all the other expenses, and we've said, yeah, this can fit into this person's monthly budget. If it can't, 
we can't do the proposal because we're not solving the problem at that point. We're just giving or trading one obligation that can't be paid for another, which is different than you just going and borrowing on a consolidation. Yeah, they'll look a little bit, but they just want to arrange the financing if possible. On a proposal, this has to be part of an overall solution that makes sense and fits within your daily realities. Okay. Could we outline for somebody who's listening, who's trying to figure out what's better, personal bankruptcy or consumer proposal? What's the advantages of choosing a consumer proposal over a bankruptcy? Just to give them, you know, something to compare it to. Yeah, a couple things. You know, first off, one thing that I would highlight is just the amount of certainty that's built into a consumer proposal compared to a bankruptcy. And what I mean by that is once the proposal is approved, and that's about 45 days after you've signed it, we get all the votes in and the 50% say yes, the proposal is approved. Once that happens, you know exactly how the rest of this time is going to unfold. You're in control. As long as you make those payments, no one can opt out of the proposal. No one can sue you separately. No one can invent some new charges to put on top of these old debts. You know exactly what you're going to have to do. And if things improve in the future, let's say your salary goes way up or you get a bonus at work, you're not required to pay any of that towards the proposal. You can choose to do so and maybe pay it off more quickly and get things put behind you, but nothing increases in terms of the total amount payable. Now that contrasts with the bankruptcy where essentially I can't tell you how a bankruptcy is going to go until you're through it because every month that you're in bankruptcy, you have to report your income to us. I see. So if your income goes way up, if you're in a bankruptcy, the government says, well, that's great. You're going to be in bankruptcy a little bit longer and you're going to have to pay a little bit more money. But that can be kind of depressing to the individual. If you get a bonus while you're in bankruptcy, some part of it, usually about half, is going to have to get paid into the bankruptcy. It doesn't get you out any sooner. It doesn't give you any benefit, but you're just paying more into the bankruptcy. Got it. So if you know over the next little while, hey, my income's not going to increase, no un- unforeseen windfalls coming, okay, well, bankruptcy still can have a whole lot of certainty, but there is the potential at the end of a bankruptcy that either the government or your creditors can apply to court and say, hey, regardless of whether you've done everything right in bankruptcy, we still think there should be some amounts repaid. And this doesn't happen often. It sometimes happens if you owe more than $200,000 to the government, and you can understand why they'd want something back on that. But there is that uncertainty that somebody could object until the end. Whereas in a proposal, there's none of that uncertainty, you know, within about the 45-day period if we've got a deal. Okay. Um, and in the in the last uh, a minute or so for this segment, does a consumer proposal have advantages over any debt management solutions? Like, are there any other ones? Yeah, you know, some things, if you were to go to a credit counselor, for example, they would give you something that looks like a consumer proposal, but the big, big difference is a consumer proposal, it can reduce the debt as opposed to having to pay everything in full. It can include government debt, where the only folks that can, an informal credit counselor just can't. Um, and it's geared to what you can afford. So a proposal is going to fit into your budget. It can deal with all of your debts. And essentially, if one of your creditors doesn't want the proposal, we can still get the proposal approved as long as 50% by dollar value say yes. Nobody can opt out. They're all bound by the law. Okay. So there's lots of factors to consider when evaluating how to get out of debt. Um, The best advice that we can give you and that I can give you is go see Blair at Sands & Associates. Book your confidential free consultation. It's easy to do with a local Sands & Associates representative. They're all over British Columbia. They've got offices all over BC. It's easy to do. Call 1-800-661-3030. Go to the website at sands-trustee.com as well. You can use that to connect with them. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us is Mark Fidget. He's a member of the Verico Mortgage Network. 
licensed 26 years in the mortgage industry and the driver behind this website, www.advancedequity.ca. Such a great topic to have right now, Mark, talking about the mortgages and the industry in itself. And I know, Blair, I said that you would get to start the segment off, but this is a crazy number. <laughs> At, mm-hmm. As of April 22nd, 2020, 710 thousand mortgages in this country have been deferred wow that's that's quite something right it's uh, you know it's crazy uh, and and uh, as we'll get into the conversation here trying to get through on the phone to even talk about a deferral the banks have just been slammed i mean hence your numbers wow yeah, and if, if 710,000 got approved, you know, it's probably north of a million people have, you know, tried to apply or wish they were eligible or something like that. It's probably a pretty significant uh, portion of the overall market. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, but it, it's, you have to understand that when this first started, there was no blueprint for this, and the banks were just as stunned as everybody else. So in the beginning, it was real Mickey Mouse, and it wasn't until the government stepped in and kind of gave the banks a little bit more of an assurance, uh, CMHC as well, so then it started to have some kind of system to it, but still, those numbers are staggering. And I just let's be clear here, Mark, because because uh, it's just something that I've learned recently. Uh, a deferring a, a deferred mortgage means that you are not paying your regular payments. Well, yes and no. So the the big confusion is some people thought that it's free; you don't have to pay; it just goes away, and that's not the case. I think the real word that's missing is the word "now." You don't have to pay it now. You. For example, what the banks have done is they're deferring up to six months now. So if your payment is, say, $2,000 a month, and let's fast forward six months, you've now deferred six payments of $2,000, so $12,000. So what happens is people are even thinking, well, in six months, do I all of a sudden have to come up with $12,000? No, it's actually added to the back end of your mortgage. So you're going you're gonna to owe just uh, north of $12,000 but it's going to be added to your total. So if you've got a mortgage owing of 200000 now it's 212000 and change, and there's a bit of accrued interest, but it's cheap money. So if you need it, it's a great program. I see. Okay, cool. Thanks for answering that, because I, I, I was confused as well. So that's great. Yeah, and, and Mark, who is the typical person that's looking to defer their mortgage these days? You know, what type of factors are banks looking at on whether you qualify? What's been your experience there? Well, who's looking to defer their mortgage? I think this is the real icebreaker here, Blair, and I, I actually heard you say it uh, earlier in the week. You know, w- when the tide goes out, you see what's going on and who's wearing their swimming trunks. The unfortunate <laughs> thing about this whole dilemma is there's no real one painted picture for who is deferring their mortgage. I mean, pilots have been laid off. I mean, you would think, hey, that's a great occupation. You know, the, you've got a, you know, maybe you go out and you're a pilot and you get a great mortgage and it's it's high, but hey, I got I got guaranteed income. So really, there was no certain uh, class or, or income. It was basically everybody who was affected. Uh, a lot of them just were very tight to being, uh, you know, one or two months away from not being able to afford a payment. 
Hmm. And that's that's been a big revelation, I think, for a lot of people, Mark. And I remember, um, you know, I saw with the, the government shutdown in the U.S., you had so many, you know, federal employees, you know, great jobs. And in the space of two weeks, people were down, you know, rationing medication, not able to afford groceries. So it seems to speak to, you know, in general, the average consumer, a North American consumer, doesn't have a whole lot of an emergency fund, a whole lot of savings. So, you know, someone like a pilot who's probably earned a good income for a period of time, you know, if, if professionals like that are seeking a mortgage deferral, um, you know, it really doesn't speak well to the average person having a lot of savings or an emergency fund there well and this is just my experience Blair, but my experience with clients of all different incomes is they all seem to live their life according to what they make so um in a situation mm-hmm. like this when you think everything is guaranteed and nothing's going to change tomorrow and if you're living at maximum capacity in terms of spending yeah, this is where it really comes back to hurt you and you know, you know, Mark, I think that that's one of, they, they talk about that this period of time that we're in, at the end of it, there will be a whole bunch of, uh, sort of new realities. And I always think about it as lessons learned. And I think that might be one of the most important lessons that we are going to come out of this with. That, you know, that pushing to the limits, needing to have everything, wanting to have everything right now in a, in a big form or a small form or in a luxury form or whatever it is, as opposed to taking, a, taking a, a breath or taking a step and thinking, boy, do I really need to get that now? Do I need to purchase that now? I know that that's something that I go through and I'm, I'm thinking that other people are doing that too. Well, absolutely. I mean, when you think about, Right now, they're talking that people are actually saving more now than when they were, you know, a lot of these people aren't working, but they're actually learning to save more. They're not spending. So, and I think you're right that when people come out of this, uh, I mean, you hate to say it, but sometimes uh, the best lessons learned are the ones that come the hard way. And this is, uh, this is what I think will happen, too. I think people are going to spend less just because they've experienced something that they never thought would ever happen in their life. And could it happen again? Hey, you never know now, right? Yeah, and I think having to stay home, being asked to stay home or to limit our activities, I think that even just for however long that lasts, and it may be over by the time this segment uh, runs in the big way that it is now, um, I mean, that makes a difference for people. For sure. I mean, it's, you know, the other good thing that I think has come of this is people have, like you sort of talked about it, more time with their families, sort of experiencing the things that are really important. Is it, is it that nice car? Is it that motorcycle? Is it, you know, that fancy watch? Or, or is it really, you know, what's important? And, and I think that's sort of changing a lot, too, which is a great thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what, what I'm hoping comes out of this, too, is a whole lot less stigma around debts, that I think there's mm. going to be, you know, so much financial impact, so many people having a tough time, that, you know, I think finally they'll start to throw out into the open uh, the fact that the average consumer is overextended and we shouldn't be judging ourselves, we should just be able to move forward and actually take some steps to, to fix the problem rather than be, you know, so down on everybody for getting into it. Uh, Mark, I was curious from your perspective, are there clients who you think shouldn't investigate, uh, you know, a mortgage deferral, um, you know, whether they wouldn't get approved or it's not the right decision for them? Well, I, I think the key component is, are you experiencing financial hardship right now as a result of, you know, this pandemic? Um, you know, there's there's talk, I've read things about, you know, why, you know, don't do it, it's going to accrue interest. But when you think of this, Blair, your interest rate is at your contract rate. So if you've got a 3% interest rate or a five-year term, that's the, you know, it's such, it's such a small interest rate. So 
you know, the, the question is, if you can afford to pay your mortgage payment, then go ahead and pay it. But if you are having hardship, you've lost a job, or, you know, your income's been reduced, or you're having to stay home to look after someone who's not well because of, you know, this virus, then you know what? This is a great thing. I, I, I think the interest rate's so low, um, you're not going to have to pay it immediately. It gets tagged to the uh, end of your mortgage, so it's, it's, it's insignificant. So I would say, absolutely, if you can say that you've been affected by the virus in some way, then yeah, you're, you're likely going to qualify. Okay, and that makes good sense. Yeah, as you're speaking here, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, if the difference is you got a credit card bill that you've got to pay, uh, and if you don't defer your mortgage, you're not able to pay it, well, your credit card is probably 20 to 30% interest, and your mortgage is free, so uh, that's not too tough of a calculation to make. That's a better use of your funds. Absolutely, and then there's, you know, you bring up the, you know, the idea of credit card. I think, you know, what I've told to a lot of my clients is just make a list of all your debt, and sort of if you've been affected by this, Start with your mortgage, if you have one, uh, or your rent, or whatever it is, and go down the line, your credit card, call them up. I think everybody within reason is working with people because they know this is something that we've never experienced before, and everybody's having a tough time. So, you know, don't be afraid to reach out there, but uh, be prepared to be put on hold for quite a while. Yeah, fair enough, right? Um and from a credit rating point of view, Mark, I get th- this question a lot when you're dealing with creditors. You know, if you're deferring a mortgage payment, what is the impact? Is that going to affect your credit? Well, I'm, I'm hoping not. So they're saying that if you've been approved for a deferral, then the banks will not be reporting to the credit bureau because typically, as you know, Blair, you miss payments. Uh, it gets automatically uh, computer-generated and and reported to the credit bureau. So it's one of those things where the bank actually has to make that change. So I'm telling all my clients that it shouldn't affect your credit. It's not supposed to, but if you can get something in writing from whoever you're speaking to at the bank, so at least at the end of the day, if you go back and find out that, hey, this affected my credit and the bank told me that it wasn't, then at least you've got a name and some type of communication to go back and, and try to, you know, sort of get it sorted out at the end of the day. Yeah, and that's just so important because I, I deal with clients, you know, quite often. Okay, there's an inaccuracy on the credit report. If you've got something in writing, you know, I can send them the documents to say what should be on there. It's very easy to get it, to get it corrected. If it's, well, you know, the bank promised me they wouldn't report this payment late, but you don't know who, you don't know when, you didn't get it in, in writing, uh, you're not going to be successful in getting your credit rating, you know, fixed if there is an error made on that. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we've all... Not all, but you and I, Blair, we're in the same sort of dealing with credit issues, and we know that the amount of inconsistencies on a person's credit bureau are crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost rarer to find one that has zero errors than to find one that has a bunch. They almost all have at least a few things. No, for sure. That, that, that should be corrected there. Um, so, so, Mark, I'm curious your, your overall advice you know, of clients who are you know, in a mortgage now, they're considering about mortgage deferral, or even more broadly considering, you know, what do I do to get through this next you know, period of time, however long it's going to be? Uh, what type of advice would you give to consumers at this point? Well, you know, we talked about this uh, a while back, but right now, and I think every, it's in the news, uh, you know, obviously the virus is huge, our health is, is priority. Uh, you know, I truly believe your financial health and your physical health and mental health, they're all connected. So we all know the negative impact that stress can have on our health. So if deferring your mortgage reduces stress in your life, whether it be financial stress, mental stress, any kind of stress, then you know what? They should be taking care of it. Uh, you know, a person's health and their family are priority. And if this, can, if this can assist them, then, hey, you know what? They should be absolutely applying if they haven't already to defer their mortgage. Okay, that's great. Uh, Elaine, any other questions? Or I think we're well, popping up uh, on time here. 
I was just thinking, uh, just in the last 30 seconds, I know, Blair, that you talked to so many people and your business has been very, very busy as a result of what's going on, that you are hearing a lot of stress in people's lives and uh, and in their voices when they're talking to you. And it sounds like good information that, that we need to look after our mental health as much as well as our financial health and, and physical health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think everybody just has to Take a step back, and I know it's stressful, but take a deep breath. Nothing is going to happen immediately. It's, uh, it's one of those things where the courts are closed. Nobody's coming after you. Nobody's taking your house. So just sit back, take a deep breath, and sort of figure out what the next best step is. And if that's to defer your mortgage, then you know what? Do it, and I'm sure you're going to feel better once it's done. That's great. Thank you, Mark. We've been talking with Mark Fidget. He's a member of Verico Mortgage Network. Uh, you can find him at www.advancedequity.ca. For information about debt and, and maybe taking some uh, steps or at least getting more information, go to Sands & Associates, their website, sands-trustee.com, or call one 800 661 for that free consultation and to find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. A very timely segment for sure, and I like that we're just hitting it right on the head. This is about managing your debt during COVID-19, and if we have time, we're going to touch on planning for the future. But I think, Blair, and I agree with you, learning tips on how to cope with debts, mitigate the stress that comes with operating a business or, or just operating within this crazy, crazy time we're living in. Uh, it's such a great idea to give listeners um, some resources and share their, those resources to help folks deal with their debts as well as some good advice. So first question. What is this pandemic from what who you've talked to and what you've seen? What is it doing to our household debt? I can't imagine anything good. No, I, you know, and the short answer in two words is nothing good. <laughs> that, that's yeah. for sure. Um, so, you know, it wasn't the case that before the pandemic, the BC consumer was just doing great. Everything was hunky-dory. We were saving a lot. We had low debt. Uh, we were looking towards a bright future. It was quite the opposite. Um, the BC consumer wasn't saving enough. Uh, very high levels of consumer debt in BC and across the country. Um, and absent this pandemic, what trustees were already anticipating was a significant surge in bankruptcy and proposal filings. Uh, for the year of 2020. So, you know, in February, which is the last kind of, you know, normal month that that we can remember now here, uh, province-wide filings for bankruptcies and proposals, it was up more than 10% uh, over the last 12-month period. And there had been some wild swings in the last year. You know, one month it was up 35% year over year. In February, it was up 10%. So there were a lot of people already feeling pretty stretched. Um, And now what's happened is, you know, with income being interrupted, with huge uncertainty, you know, that debt stress level has risen significantly. But what's happened in terms of people filing for bankruptcies and proposals, that's fallen to an all-time low. Um, I've been a trustee for 13 years. I've never seen such a decline in the number of people taking formal steps to restructure their debts uh, as I've seen in March, April, and May uh, of this year so far. So why do you think that is? Well, there's a number of reasons why. We're going to go into them a little bit, uh, but, you know, the biggest thing is uncertainty. 
So, you know, if someone has just been laid off, um, they've got enough things on their mind right now. They don't know what their future is going to hold um, in yeah. terms of their future income, their ability to make payments on their debts. So it's really tough to plan for, you know, repaying your debts when in the short term, you're worried about providing for your family, um, you know, about making your rent payments, um, all of that. So we think once the once this pandemic is you know, over and over is, is a relative term, uh, but yeah. essentially once government support payments have started to wind down. So, you know, a big factor has been that the government has stepped in uh, with the Canada Emergency Response Benefit or CERB as it's known, uh, and that's just been recently extended as well. So folks are, are more focused on, okay, the government's given me, me the ability to meet my everyday needs, uh, but that's usually not enough for me to meet my everyday needs and deal with my debts. So a lot of folks, you know, creditors are offering various deferrals they're really focused on their short-term everyday needs, which we think that's going to reverse very, very quickly once people start getting back to work, back to normal, and once government supports um, start to turn off a little bit. So you think more and more people are going to then look at that hard truth that I'm in trouble, I need to take action, where do I go? Yeah, my, my forecast, and you know, people can hold me to this, and I hope I'm not correct, but uh, I think that 2021 will be the all-time peak in bankruptcies and proposals across Canada. I think we'll never have seen numbers um, to what we'll see in 2021 uh, once the government support has stopped, once creditors have started to you know, collect again, uh, once individuals see, well, they're, they're just not going to be able to get out of the hole that some people are in. So what if you're one of those people that's been doing okay, but uh, not too sure again about what the future holds? I mean, we're all in a similar position. What are some of the uh, tips that you can give folks for managing their debt in the meantime? Yeah, it's kind of three big things I encourage people to focus on in the short term. Uh, number one is to identify and prioritize your most essential expenses. So you need to get away from the idea that you know, if the collector is calling, that's super urgent, I need to pay them first. You need to look at, you know, essentially your hierarchy of needs in life. You know, do I have shelter? Do I have food? Uh, am I able to pay my mortgage? Am I able to pay the car loan, for example? So you really need to look at all of your essential expenses um, and think about, you know, which ones can I afford to pay? And hopefully it's all of those. But if you can only afford to cover your essentials, you need to be absolutely ruthless about identifying what's non-essential expenses. So now is the time to take the fine-tooth comb to your credit card statements, you know, look at your recurring subscriptions, look at your recurring payments. Um, you know, you need to be just absolutely focused on every dollar coming in and out uh, if it's an environment where your income has been reduced during this pandemic. Yeah, that makes good sense. Yeah, a second item here is if you do need to borrow, be very careful who you borrow from. So, you know, sometimes if your rent is going to be late, for example, you know, one option is to go and get a payday loan and then start to pay some high interest charges, but you kept your landlord happy. Um, you know, another option would be to have a discussion with your landlord, explain what you're facing and say, you know, I can give you this much on this date, the rest of it a couple of weeks later, will you agree to that? And probably they're not going to charge you a whole lot of interest or any interest, hopefully. Um, you know, that's a better outcome than you starting a cycle of high cost borrowing. Um, so it's never advisable for you to, to borrow to make a debt payment. So if you're looking to incur other debt just to make minimum payments on a debt that you already have, uh, that's generally not a good idea. The robbing Peter to pay Paul or the playing financial Tetris to move things around. You're looking at high transaction costs, increased stress levels, and you're just adding to your debt on a monthly basis, which is the opposite of the direction that you want to move in. And I think having that conversation is such a great idea, too. Uh, we've seen so many instances where landlords have gone out of their way to help their tenants in some cases, and in some cases that hasn't been the situation. But at least give it a shot, if nothing else, I think. 
Mm-hmm. And, and that just leads us perfectly to our next point, Elaine, which is all about communication. So, you know, you've heard a ton from various banks and credit unions about payment deferrals, and it's so important to reach out to your creditors before you miss payments. Uh, if you're under a payment deferral and the payment is anticipated to be missed, well, that's not going to be a surprise to anybody. You're not going to get the collection calls. They're not going to go and ding your credit for it. And most financial institutions, they're offering now three to six months with no payments, but you need to be clear-eyed about this and understand, you know, in just about every case, they're not writing off or waiving the interest. Some of them are reducing it, but not all. Um, so all you're doing essentially is kicking the can down the road. You're not getting debt forgiveness, uh, but you are getting a little bit of short-term debt relief. So just be aware that you still will need to get paid in the future, but in the short term, absolutely take advantage of the possible deferrals that are available to you. And do you want to talk specifically about some of those uh, you know, actions that folks have taken, like CRA has, has made some changes to your payment mm-hmm. and when to make the payments, et cetera? Yeah, I think that's great to make our listeners aware of because another reason why fewer people are filing bankruptcies or proposals right now, which again seems counterintuitive, you'd think that things would be spiking, but what's happened is the creditors have essentially taken the foot off the gas nearly completely and Canada Revenue Agency is leading the charge on this in a very positive way. So what they've done is they've deployed a ton of their employees to getting people their SERB checks to making sure you know the right support is going to Canadians when they need it, um, but they're not focused on collecting old debts. So at least until September and perhaps longer, CRA has publicly stated they've suspended collection activities on new debts and they're also going to be addressing pre-existing situations on a case-by-case basis to prevent financial hardship. Um, I've never seen that uh, that strategy from CRA in the past. And CRA, from anyone who listens to us often, we know they're the most powerful creditor. They can seize assets without a court order and they can seize wages, but they're not doing anything like that, at least through to September. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. Um, what else in that in that particular Area. Yeah, I think I think giving people you know a little more assurance or you know relief, hopefully, uh, is it's broader than CRA now. So where I mentioned that you know CRA they don't need to go to court to seize your wages or your assets, and they're not going to do that now. Other creditors would need to go to court, but you know what? Right now, Elaine, the courts are closed. So at least through yes. to September, creditors have no hard recourse against you. They can't take you to court. They can't seize your wages. Um, so oftentimes people come running through our door because they've just been garnished or they've been threatened for asset seizure. So all of that has taken a bit of a stand- standstill as well in the short term. So it's really coming back to during the pandemic, focus on the essentials, focus on your necessities. And it's a time to plan to deal with your debts by taking a step right now to file a bankruptcy in haste where a proposal might be a great option just a few months down the road. That's what a lot of people are choosing to do is to wait until there's more clarity. And you know what, if I was in that situation, and it's not just because I work with you every weekend, but mm-hmm. I would go see a licensed insolvency trustee uh, to, to figure out next steps, because I know what situation I'm in, regardless of what uh, others are going to demand of me eventually, I know that I'm in a pickle and I need to make some changes. Go see Blair Manton, Sands & Associates, give them a call, 1-800-661-3030, get that free consultation and to find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.